So good evening and welcome to the LSE. Can you hear me? No? Hello? Can you hear me? Can I start uh, with an apology? I am not Susie Hall. Um, and Susie, together with a lot of you, uh, including also Victoria until a few hours ago, is not feeling well. And uh, she's asked me to step in at the last moment to chair this event. So apologies on her behalf. My name is Ricky Burdett. I'm a professor in the Department of Sociology, which is hosting uh, this book launch and this discussion on migration. And I'm with Susie, in fact, uh, one of the co-editor of this wonderful, heavy, beautiful, but ridiculously expensive book, uh, which just makes sure that your library uh, purchases, uh, and certainly don't ask you to purchase it yourself. Uh, I'll talk about the book in a moment, but just in terms of the logistics of the evening, we have uh, two of uh, the many wonderful authors uh, of this uh, compilation of essays actually speaking uh, with us tonight on one of the many themes that we've tackled in this uh, publication. We have Ashamin and Victoria Redcliffe, and I'll be introducing them in a moment. My role will be just to chair the evening and also uh, chair the discussion with you uh, at the end with, as part of the Q&A. Uh, at the end of the event, coming up to around quarter to eight, what we'd like to do is invite you all outside for uh, the sort of official launch, effectively, of the book and drinks. So please stay on and uh, engage with uh, some of the authors who are here in the room uh, and, of course, here on the panel. Um, as uh, Susie would have said in her introduction, obviously, as co-editor, I'm sort of part of the journey, but she had played very much the key role in putting this uh, uh, publication together over a three-year cycle, in fact, for SAGE, uh, the publishers. The first thing to say is that we were asked to do something called the SAGE Handbook for Urban Sociology, and we immediately changed the title to the SAGE Handbook of the 21st Century City, simply that we felt that the word sociology perhaps wasn't enough today in terms of the themes that you see there that we're interested in uh, uh, analyzing in terms of what constitutes the issues, the tensions, the global tensions of the contemporary city and global is very significant. Uh, we've assembled uh, nearly or more than 40 um, uh, writers, both established and uh, emerging from different disciplines, uh, organized in these different um, uh, areas that you see here um, in order to give a genuine and I hope a fresh cross-section in terms of the themes and debates about the contemporary city. Um, what we did is decided that perhaps it's uh, such an obvious moment in not only European but uh, international uh, developments today to focus on just one of these issues and the issue of migration. Uh, so we've asked uh, Ashamin and Victoria Redcliffe to uh, join us to do this. It's an interdisciplinary exercise. Uh, it's an interdisciplinary experiment, effectively, this book. We're bringing architects together with sociologists, uh, ethnographers uh, together with planners to speculate, as I say, on the future of the city. But we want to narrow down today on issues of uh, great relevance to every single European city, but as we'll hear, also more broadly. Um, and uh, to do that, as I say, we've chosen both Ash and Victoria to join us. Victoria, by the way, and I'm saying this only <laughs> 24 hours ago, was also not going to make it, so she's asked if she, we don't mind if she speaks sitting down from the table, so that's absolutely fine, and she'll be the first to speak for about 20 minutes. 
and she'll be reviewing some of the um, authors and some of the subjects in the book itself, uh, in the section on migration, just touching upon some of the themes and her own extremely valuable uh, work on Dhaka in Bangladesh, and particularly uh, observing and talking to a number of the residents of one of the, uh, migra- uh, one of the camps there. And then Ash Amin will use a few slides to talk about some of his uh, speculations and observations and work that he's been doing most recently, in fact, in Shanghai on the rural to urban migrants. So we have a very rich and, I think, sort of international perspective of this issue. So I think without further ado, because we want to get as many uh, of the ideas out on the table, uh, I'd like to welcome two of the many authors who are here, and uh, perhaps you can join me in welcoming our two speakers. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ricky. Um, Before I start, I just wanted to quickly say that um, I realise LSE isn't striking today, uh, which is a bit of a shame, but I I just wanted to... Sorry, someone's gesturing at me. Is it the mic? Um, I've got a mic here. Can you hear? Can you hear? Everyone here? Um, I just wanted to say that um, at Surrey, where I work, we've had a, a huge amount of support from our students in relation to the strike, particularly from a campaign group called Students in Support of the Strike. I just wanted to say quickly to all of those students out there that have been, that have been standing in solidarity with, with lecturers over the last few weeks, um, how much we appreciate it, because we know how difficult it is for you all, and um, it's not easy to strike either. So thank you very much for your support. Yeah, sorry. I should have a mic here, but perhaps it's not working. Um, Anyway, it's really nice to be here at this event, which not only celebrates the publication of this um, lime green masterpiece, as Ricky was saying, um, but also provides us with the opportunity to speak more broadly about migration in the city. And before I begin, I wanted to, first of all, say a few words about why I think it's important to discuss migration and the city. Um, You could argue there's a divergence between our interest in migrants in the city and our interest in migration, or so-called migration crises, even. When migrants in the city are discussed in the press and in public commentary, they're very often represented as a burden, as something that creates tension or is associated with urban problems. And I think my mic is working. <laughs> and urban policy solutions, such as integrationism. They're very often detached from the migration, or in some cases so-called migration crises, that brought them to the city. And this divergence isn't accidental, of course, to decouple migrants in the city from the migration that brought them there is to enable a lack of empathy. Familyless, journeyless, they can be represented as an inconvenience. But migration itself is rarely so banal. As the Mediterranean continues to remind us, it's often violent, it can be extremely dangerous. For some, it's a life-or-death decision, and it's never a decision that's taken lightly. But 
we don't want to be conf- confronted by this reality in our musings on the everyday problems of urban life. <coughs> However, when we're forced to consider how the city is key to thinking through migration systems, we're forced to bring those migrants in the city and their migration to the city back together. And this simple act is really important. But I'll say more about that as I go on. So what I've tried to do here is pull out um, three themes that I think the book um, brings to the fore in relation to migration in the city. And then I'll say a few words about my own research in relation to this question. And finally, I'll, I'll finish with some general reflections. So, to the book. Um, first, much of the research in this book speaks to what the city tells us about the political histories through which migration systems arise and relatedly through which the city is created. Different urban spaces tell us something about the different histories of urban migration that built them. The residents of the migrant street, which is Stapleton Road in Bristol, described in the book by Hall, Finlay and King, and their multiple migration journeys to the UK, shed light on the UK's histories of colonialism, they shed light on the UK's interventionist policies overseas, and they shed light on the UK's contemporary global economic relations. And another chapter on the book, Alex Rees Taylor's sensory exploration of Ridley Road Market in East London, produces a portrait of the migration systems that have contributed to London's present-day metropolitan multiculture. As he explains, in the east end of of London, the jerk chicken bagel is one example of the many products of these histories and their continual transcultural evolution. So this is about the long durée, really. As Brenner and Schmidt would have it, urban configurations represent the territorial inheritance of earlier rounds of socio-spatial configuration. But I would add that they also represent the social, cultural, economic, political and territorial inheritance of their migratory pasts. And so this is kind of the city as the sedimented product of its migration history, really, which is not only key to understanding its present, but it's surprisingly often forgotten. Second, a number of contributions in the book um, speak to what the city makes possible for migrants. Ash's chapter reflects on a feature of urban life that's been made much of since the EU referendum, and that's the so-called vernacular of conviviality, which pushes back at local and wider vernaculars of anxiety towards migrants. So this is the the city as a zone of encounter and therefore potentially of recognition. The urban refugee camp in Dhaka in Bangladesh, which I consider in my own chapter, sheds a different kind of light on this encounter. 
I discuss the acts of moving from inside the camp to outside, of marrying outside the camps, and of passing as not from the camp, all of which challenge the practice of marking difference in the city. As the chapter shows, the camp, like the city as a, as a whole in a sense, becomes its own unique space where tradition is invented, where languages fuse and where new ethnicities emerge. As I discovered during my time there, through this everyday moving and mixing, which is characteristic of urban space, in this particular example, citizenship itself can be reconfigured. So in the socio-historical context of this example, with the migrations caused by partition and the Liberation War very much in the background, by moving out of the camps in Dhaka, or by marrying out of the camps, or by passing as someone not from the camps, citizenship itself can be acquired. Here, then, the claiming of a formal status and a political identity is possible as a product of the daily encounter between strangers that's a feature of urban life. In a different way, the border city, which is discussed in the book by Chen and Stone, also creates a certain kind of possibility for migrants. As they explain, the border city is very often the actor implementing national and provincial policies around mobility. It's therefore also very often the actor which produces the economic growth that sustains that mobility. And they argue the border city therefore scales up the possibilities for migration which targeted state policies can unleash. Also, going back to the migrant street... I mentioned before, in Bristol, and the market in East London. Both of these spaces tell us something about what can be special about certain parts of the city um, in relation to, for example, unrestricted business regulations or in relation to employment opportunities or in relation to things like business rate inequalities, etc., that can itself produce certain opportunities for migrants. They show us how the flavours and tastes of home found in the city can create social and economic opportunities for new arrivals. So this is this, the city as a space in which migrants can profit from fellow homesick travellers or, as Rhys Taylor puts it, vend an experience of elsewhere. As Saskia Sasson has argued, it's in cities to a large extent where the powerless have left their imprint because nothing can really control the diversity of people and engagements present in our large cities. So this diversity of people and engagements is, is really what the city makes possible for migrants. But, this is a big but, I'd like to focus on the other side of this coin for a minute. Because if the city provides spatial arrangements and social opportunities that might work for migrants, the third theme from the book that strikes me 
is under what conditions those opportunities are brokered. I think this darker side needs some emphasis. As Ash explains in his own chapter, the city may push back at wider public anxiety towards migrants, but it's not shielded from them. In fact, the city is actively involved in disciplining the migrant or in arbitrating collective feelings through contextual factors such as hierarchies of wealth and poverty, um, policies of urban integration, as well as the material environment itself and the character of the encounter that all those things produce. The border city, again, also shows us how debordering and rebordering via both state and market-driven globalisation can create friction or tension towards migrants because of the uneven distribution of political power that it represents. And the migrant street in Bristol, again, as the authors explain, gives us a window on city-making at the margins. And in doing so, it tells us not only about the migration systems that have constructed the city, but also what it takes or requires of those individuals, those migrants who've built it. Likewise, the market in East London not only illustrates the opportunities provided by London's metropolitan multiculture, but also the fortification of racialized senses of cultural difference that occur alongside this transcultural evolution. The jerk chicken bagel, again, is a product of colonial migration systems and racialized encounters that both led migrants to East London and violently affected their lives on arrival. Finally, the urban refugee camp in Dhaka. Much like the ghetto or ethnic enclave racialises residents. In the space of the camp, economic deprivation redoubles ethnic discrimination. And stigma works through discourses of dirt, poverty and pollution to influence the way that ethnicity is read and understood. In the space of the camp, or the, the space of the camp itself then, actually becomes constitutive of the manner in which racial identities are defined. So in my example, for those individuals who move into the camp from outside, or who marry into the camp from outside, citizenship is lost in that move. Political identity is left behind. But more to the point, perhaps, those individuals that move or marry out or pass as not from the camp in order to access citizenship in a way that might be seen to challenge the practice of marking racial and ethnic difference. In doing so, those acts actually buy into the same oppressive social order, legitimating and perpetuating it. So in this way, the city both unsettles state prescriptions 
of belonging through how people pursue their everyday connections and ambitions. But it also replicates race-class conflations and stigmatises residents in ways that characterise urban life and in ways which play out in access to real material goods and services. And in a way, I can't help but think about something like Grenfell here, actually. As a zone of encounter, the city presents opportunities for migrants. But at the border, on the street, at the market, and in the camp... Virulent systems of social sorting limit the participation of migrants in the city. And the city takes or requires a good deal of those who build it. My current research among um, Bengali migrants and their second, third and fourth generation families in London, Birmingham and Los Angeles (coughs) alters the lens again slightly. When we set the post-colonial city against the settler city, city, we see how the different histories through which urban space is formed influence the kind of migrants they attract or allow, as well as the experience of those migrants within the system. And instead of generalising North American theory to the rest of the world, which sociology is sometimes guilty of. This comparative focus allows us to see how concepts such as model minority or ethnic underclass are produced differently by different urban settings and how discrimination manifests itself in very different ways. I would argue that comparative approaches such as this are useful as we try to understand how the city is key to thinking through migration systems, in part because of the specific and differentiated experience that they highlight. But also, to go back to my first point, because they draw attention to the political histories through which migrations, well, both migration systems and cities arise. This helps us reframe the question slightly to ask what would it be like to understand the city without an understanding of migration? How different does the city look? My own research also makes me wonder where these migration systems end. And this relates in certain ways to discussions of global cities or planetary urbanism even because of course they don't end it's not just the city which is the space that migrants inhabit they have compound experiences an international compass what can we learn about the relationship between urban space and this much bigger (coughs) transnational dimension We're reminded here that migration isn't a terminal process, after all, and the city's borders are not as obvious, perhaps, as they once were. And as many of the ethnographic accounts in the book 
demonstrate, for many, the city is simply where migration systems begin. When we look at these transurban dynamics in particular, it's easier to see how the conditions for migration to the city have been historically created, for the most part, by European <coughs> colonialism. The classic, we're here because you were there, as well as the interventionism or neo-colonialism that's followed. The poverty and disenfranchisement that drives people to migrate has been produced and continues to be produced by the activities of richer nations. <coughs> but the popular anxiety which reduces migrants to illegal subjects, which threaten the harmony of city life, and which reduces migration to crises at national borders, fails to recognise this truth. The city has been established and is maintained on the labour, historical and present, of those foreign bodies. The unevenly woven urban fabric of the globe is built on those histories. Which takes me back to where I began and to the task of recoupling the migrants in the city with their migration to the city, their migration stories and experiences, as well as the political histories that lie behind them. How different do those familyless, journeyless migrants in the city look? And are we any closer to imagining a politics of recognition? Thank you very much. Thank you, Victoria, for taking a sort of analytical view of that chapter, and I'm sure many of the thoughts and comments you made apply to other sections of the book. I think just to reframe it in the context of political history, those dynamics and fluidity of migration, and then discrimination through race is something which is powerfully articulated in your thoughts. And now we turn to Ash Amin, who will talk actually not about what is in the book, uh, because that's mainly about um, issues of migration in European cities, but uh, more recent work on uh, Shanghai. Thank you, Ash. <coughs> Ricky, thank you very much. Um, can you hear me at the back? Good. Um, and can I begin also by echoing Victoria's gratitude to the students here for supporting the strike, if you have supported the strike. So I... Uh, hail from Cambridge, uh, where in my own department in, in geography, um, there's been a, virtually an entire kind of collapse of lecturing over the last couple of weeks, and it's going to carry on as well. And uh, my great misfortune at the moment is that I'm head of department, so I find myself completely stuck between a rock and a hard place. And I have to say, so far, the students have been absolutely brilliant. So thank you here, and thank you, my students in, in Cambridge. Um, it, it is a great book, this book, it really is, and uh, um, I'd like to applaud um, Susie and Ricky for putting together this uh, magisterial book. It, it, it is, as it says on the tin, I think it does set out a manifesto for cities in the 21st century, so well done, it's a great book. Um, so my, in, in some ways my talk follows on 
really quite nicely from Victoria's, and we didn't plan any of this, so this is a, a, a good example of serendipity. And what I want to do, uh, this is a question I want to pose in the context of Victoria's focus on the relationship between urban encounter or urban possibility on the one hand and urban constraint on the other hand. And so here's my question. What's the nature of the relationship between national biopolitics and the urban everyday, particularly in relation to shaping the migrant experience? There is often a tendency to see the two in opposition or in isolation. The former, the sphere of the national biopolitical, this is the regimes through which bodies end up being governed or self-governing, the former is often seen to be the space of the regulatory and the remote, while the latter, uh, that which goes on in the city, is often seen to be as a space of the intimate. And I think already Victoria has told us that we need to disturb this uh, uh, opposition between the two. Because the two are very closely linked (coughs) with each other. I mean, just look at, just think about the toxicity faced by migrants on the streets of Europe today because of the the rise of a xenophobic biopolitics, a biopolitics which effectively tarnishes the migrant as somehow uh, unwanted, somehow secondary, somehow out of place. So the two spaces, that of the national biopolitical and the urban everyday, are uh, um, intrinsically interwoven. And yet what's very interesting is that each one of these spaces, which is the gist of my argument this evening, is each one of these spaces comes with its own rituals of inclusion and exclusion. So it's this joined but separate character that I want to focus on because I think it has very interesting connotations for urban possibility, possibility for migrants in the city. And what I want to do is to draw on fieldwork that I've been conducting with uh, a brilliant young anthropologist called Lisa Richard in the uh, city of Shanghai, more precisely in the Tongli Road area of Sonjiang, which is a a migrant settlement in South Shanghai. Uh, This research is part of a wider project on the mental health of urban migrants um, led by Nick Rose and Nick Manning at King's. The project focuses on the character and the management of the mental health of migrants um, in this largely migrant factory town, largely migrant factory town nested within a biopolitics of state-led urban modernization and rapid retrenchment, as we shall see in a minute, but also, interestingly, a national biopolitics of state-endorsed therapeutic response to the mental disorders posed by China's rapid 
transformations. Wherever you look now, nowadays in China, you see the rise of what some have called the rise of so, psi, or the psi, psychological, psychotherapeutic regime, um, fully embraced by many, many social actors, political actors in China, from the state through to uh, large businesses and so on. What's very interesting in the Tongli Road area is that by design, perhaps by default, the new Tsai regime, actively embraced by large workplaces and the new middle classes uh, in, within the student population, and many more who are part of the fast rise of China into uh, a world of uh, prosperity and aspiration, has largely bypassed the migrant population, okay? by design or by default. A, mi a rural migrant population that manages stress, as I will try to show for Tongli Road, through particular rituals of self-management. Rituals of self-management that reflect the biopolitical, the bi biopolitics of hypermodernization and the biopolitics of the rise of a therapeutic state in really quite revealing ways, in ways that are revealing for any discussion, I think, on urban agency at this delicate interface between national biopolitics and the lived material every day. So, that these two images of Tongli Road are at, as we find Tongli Road today, the entrance to this area with its um, very interesting, um, um, uh, almost classical architecture. And this is what you find on the far inside of Tongli Road. As you go down Tongli Road, which remains a, um, an active shopping centre with a lot of people um, engaged in the hustle and bustle of everyday living, but behind Tongli Road, this is what you see. You see what you see in that hole in the wall. The fabric of a once thriving industrial district um, um, teeming with migrant workers employed often in dirty or illegal workshops has come tumbling down over the last 18 months. When we first thought of using Tongli Road as a case study for our work on migrants in Shanghai, um, none of this, none of the rubble was there. And before we knew it, it all came crashing down. And at one point during our research, we asked ourselves, shall we stop? Shall we not actually look at migrant mental health in Tongli Road? Because something really quite unusual and catastrophic is happening in the area. And then we decided very quickly, no, this is a perfect case study. Because under this kind of duress, let's have a look at what's happening to the local population, um, both in inverted commas, the indigenous population and the migrant population. So what's happened here is that the municipality, almost two years ago, decided to embrace a different model of industrial development in the Sonjiang Juting area. And they decided that uh, this part of South Shanghai should nurture a greener, higher tech and service-based economy 
which would err on the side of legality and active municipal management of industrial life and industrial and commercial life in the area. So, very unexpectedly, we found ourselves, here we are looking at the mental health of migrants, uh, we found ourselves looking at the, the yali, which is a Chinese word for stress, of the yali of choblos, of um, rapid evacuation and um, um, collapse of the urban fabric, and an immense level of uncertainty um, in the face of, uh, of, of consistent closures, housing developments coming down amidst, in, in a sense, the rubble. Now, of course, many migrants, it is true, have returned home or, or moved on to other cities. Um, uh, China is still booming in terms of job opportunities, and the so-called floating population continues to float from city to city and often finds work pretty quickly. So, in some senses, the, the possibility of moving on and extending the migrant biography um, is there. But interestingly, many others have stayed on in the Tongli Road area. And they've stayed on partly because they've been kept back by the offer of precarious opportunity. Something is still available. Something may come around the corner by staying in situ. Perhaps they will become participants in the new greener service-led aspirations of the municipality. Or others still have stayed in the area because they have local property or family ties. They might own some property, which is going to be difficult to get rid of at a time like this, or they might um, have strong family obligations. The kids are at school, so this, is, this would not be a good time to move them. What's really striking, though, is that we witnessed very little evidence amongst the many who have chosen to stay in Tongli Road to live amidst the rubble. We found very little evidence of abjection, of resentment, or, more to the point, of serious mental disorder. We did try to look, but we couldn't find much other than... Um, examples of isolated cases of sleeplessness, um, mild depression, and of course, a kind of structural anxiety in the face of uncertainty. And what we encountered instead was a kind of structured negotiation of, of, uh, the, of life by the displaced migrants of the circumstances that they face. Um, you could call it a management of stress or a management of yali that is not reducible to the language of resi resilient subjectivity, but instead, more properly, a way of learning to inhabit ruination. And that's the main point that I wish to make this evening. So what do I mean by this um, elusive phrase, learning to inhabit ruination? And let me um, dwell on this um, by looking at two um, examples, two social, social pathologies of learning to inhabit uh, difficult times. One we might call a pathology of stretching the end. So if it is the image of decay that greets the novice eye, 
For the residents of Tongli Road, the altered landscape is an enduring, is an ending um, stretched <clears throat> or slowed down through its active daily living. It's striking how the rituals of carrying on, keeping the shop open, caring over daily chores, cleaning up the roadside, these cleaners on the top right are constantly there. You know, they clean up, they go away, they come back, they keep on cleaning. Um, rituals of exchanging courtesies amongst strangers. It's not as though people know each other. All these rituals are assiduously maintained. And through such um, curatorial practices, you could call them, ruination is somehow domesticated and its stresses um, tamed through acts of keeping busy um, through small rituals. And with this comes a sociality of casual talk about the situation itself. Um, we find a vocabulary of, I quote, uh, living for the day. I quote again, remember we've been here before. I quote again, and so it is, so it must be. And this casual talk about the situation, and it is casual talk about the situation, there are no kind of in-depth, detailed conversations about, oh my God, what are we going to do? And where, where can I find opportunities? In fact, people are not talking to each other about um, uh, possibilities here or elsewhere. Instead, what we see is that this talk gathers as, as a kind of grammar of managing anxiety, a grammar of managing uncertainty, peppered always by another kind of sociality of light talk, of chit-chat, of jokes that are exchanged, of countless numbers of cigarettes that are, uh, that are shared. So perhaps texturing time, or this pathology of texturing time, um, is simply storing up psychological trouble for another day under the skin. Who knows? Who knows? But I think one thing we can be clear about is that it is also a ritual of sharing the burden, of stopping the yali uh, of everyday uncertainty from festering. Okay? The slowing down of time um, has meaning, and the meaning here has everything to do with how you break down something gigantic into small, bite-sized, livable rituals. So that's the first example I wanted to cite. <clears throat> this, the second one has to do, and it's related to the first one, is a pathology or, or social pathology of texturing time. Tongli Road has gone from being a place of restless and incessant activity, day and night, to one in which boredom has become pervasive, especially among the many migrant entrepreneurs who've managed to keep shop open but who struggle for trade. Um, yet there are not many uh, shop closures. I mean, it's probably just a matter of time, but for the moment the shops on Tongli Road keep open. And here, too, the management of Wuliao, um, boredom, and associated yali, um, through small rituals of staying in touch, 
are crucial in breaking down the enormities of economic retrenchment. I'm referring to, and let me rapidly give you three examples, I'm referring to how the uh, local seamstress keeps busy around her sewing machine, which is doubled up as a key-cutting spot near the central market, very close to the market that you see in two of these images. And the sewing machine is kept out outdoors, um, very close to this covered market, and it's kept outdoors so that she can be visible. She can appear to look busy. Uh, she talks to passers-by. She takes on small jobs. She's become a focal point of people coming to talk to her about how awful things are or what they want to do for their children. She is, in a sense, available. Okay? Um, her positioning in this, this square, close to the market, where she places her trade, is a way of texturing time. Another example is the, the idleness of uh, storekeepers within the market, um, an idleness that's wild away by endlessly watching soaps on smartphones um, or playing card games, card, uh, a form of playing that's uh, rapid card games which are punctuated by serving customers an endless banter and an endless barrage of, uh, of jokes and uh, traded insults, all in, a, in, in good manner. Or thirdly, and this was really interesting, um, coming together in an opening on a public thoroughfare every evening um, to perform line dances around a pop-up loudspeaker. The loudspeaker belongs to a migrant. All the people who are dancing are migrants. Um, and it's, again, it's not as though there are these strong intimacies amongst the people who find themselves in this shared space. They're there to do line dancing. They're there to um, have a good time, just to forget about the, uh, the difficulties of the day. But there isn't a lot of chit-chat amongst the people. So these examples of texturing time um, we see in the paper that we've written as therapies of the self, which are rooted in living the moment and also allowing the moment to live in you. It's a reflex of the poor who do not see themselves as stakeholders or settlers with rights. And I think that's probably one of the main points that I wish to make. So let me then come to a conclusion. In both these examples, you find a strong rhetoric of self-responsibility. Often our residents speak of the need to, and I quote, swallow back stress in your heart so as to endure ruination without succumbing to mental disorders. And I've said already, perhaps this is just delaying the day when these mental disorders will truly manifest. Who knows when these things erupt? Uh, but for the moment, in, in as much as they speak consciously of their own condition, they talk about uh, the, the need for self-responsibility. And it's also something that the Chinese state constantly reminds people. You are responsible for yourselves. Build up your heart. Strengthen your heart through therapies of one kind or another. And here the migrants are doing, doing it through therapies of the self. Now what's interesting is that you could see this 
as a story of resilient subjectivity, the Argonaut uh, migrant, the migrant who, against all the odds, uh, endures and um, proves to endure. A story of the strong inner self that people without voice, without means, are forced to cultivate. But I think this would be a limited reading, for in the management of subjectivity, including responses to Yali, the rituals of placemaking turn out to be quite crucial. Yes, of course, these are rituals of familiarity among the poor. Victoria used the phrase encounter. But these are also, in my view, rituals of dwelling and in ways that allow place marking by my migrants and also <clears throat> the markings of place itself, its aesthetic design, its atmosphere, its sensorial feel, to invoke Alex Reese, also to enter into the equation. The migrants of Tongli Road now decidedly at the mercy of state biopolitics, have come to mark the space they inhabit. And in making the inhospitable habitable, and here I uh, invoke the work of Malik Simon, uh, his one wonderful work of Malik Simon on in, of making the inhospitable habitable, in doing this through pacts, of subjectivity and space, I think a therapy-free form of doing has been temporarily worked into the management of stress. This is an important way in which cityness or urbanicity weaves into the migrant experience. How place in its living filters the biopolitical. In places like Tongli Road, where horizontal relations between people and the built environment produce forms of collective being in the face of adversity, the biopolitical gets to be lived in textured ways, decentered, perhaps also moderated, as we see in the wonderful writing of uh, Susie Hall on Walworth Road, or as we shall soon see in a few couple of weeks' time in Richard Sennett's a fantastic new book. How valuable, then, to have in our world spaces where migrant communities can make place habitable on their own terms, in the borders, in the camps, in the informal settlements, in places like Tongli Road. I fear, though, that in Europe there are very few places, very few such spaces exist to help whether the chill winds of a new biopolitics of hate that is emerging. And so perhaps it's with some urgency that we need to find affective traction for a new biopolitics of national belonging, which takes us back to a lost era of multiculture. But that, I think, is another talk. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, there are two things, Ash, that I really wanted to ask you about that fascinating um, talk. Um, they're kind of related. But um, 
The first is about this rhetoric of self-responsibility. Because... <coughs> Sorry, louder. So... Sorry. Sorry. I, I am wearing a mic, come, come but I'm not here. sure if it's working. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. Um, can you hear me now? Yes. Okay. Um, what I wanted to say was that rhetoric of self-responsibility, which, you know, as you mentioned, um, is influenced by the Chinese state's narrative of self-responsibility, um, reminded me very much of interviews that I did um, with undocumented migrants in L.A., um, with a very strong rhetoric of self-responsibility, you know, incredible daily challenges, and yet this repeated kind of mantra of self-responsibility, it's up to me what I achieve, you know, I can, I can which, you know, in part, it's difficult in the context of the states not to in part put that down to the, the American states' rhetoric of self-responsibility. And so it's interesting that, you know, you... Whether or not it's to do with either either of those things, and whether or not it's actually something about the migration project, so much goes into migrating. You know, is is that part of this rhetoric of self responsibility, or or something else? But then, relatedly, um, the other question I had was about. Um, it made me think of. Anup Nayak's term, the burden of conviviality. <laughs> I mean, you're talking about these migrants' um, kind of intimate, internal, to some degrees, ways of dealing with these issues. But I'm wondering also how much you saw um, how, those, how these issues have been dealt with in relation to other people. Because, you know, Anup is kind of referencing the idea of um, those who were othered feeling the need to um, be sufficiently unscary, unthreatening to the people who other them very often. And, and that's something that I found in my research, definitely, um, among Muslims um, in L.A., in Birmingham, in, in London, um, talking about not wanting to scare people on buses or, um, you know, this very profound kind of burden of conviviality with the people that they encounter. And I just wondered whether that played into at all um, what you came across. Mm. Use the microphone. Yeah. I will? Yeah. Okay. Um, so on, on your first point, I think this burden of self-responsibility is very much part of the story of migration. Um, I'm reminded by um, Annalise Saxenian. Was it Annalise Saxenian? No. Um, a book written 20-odd years ago about um, migrants to Silicon Valley who then end up becoming really quite successful entrepreneurs and then go back to different parts of East Asia. And uh, she used the phrase Argonauts. Mm. Um, and I think what goes with that phrase is this um, rhetoric of self-responsibility that you recognize yourself as a migrant and you know that you can only rely on yourself to get from A to B mm. and in order to do something um, and it's something I suppose it's a disposition that settled folks don't have or are not required 
to have. But of course, it's very double-edged as well. I think it's a form of endurance mm. um, with all the frazzled edges that you find to that form of endurance. You know, there's a lot of... If, you, if, if, if your stress is kept in your heart, um, it's still stress. Mm. You know? mm. It's still wearing you out and down. Mm. And one kind of wonders, why is it that we don't see so many um, instances of mental and physical collapse and breakdown and failure. Mm. Um, so I think there are, there are kind of li- limitations to, uh, or rather one, one might want to ask the question whether this is a rhetorical ploy and not, not a lot more than that. Mm. Okay? Um, because you don't have anything else to fall back on. Mm. And so you say that the only gift I have is mm. self-responsibility. And it's very double-edged. Um, on your second point, the burden of conviviality, it is that to a degree, mm. although I think the circumstances here are unique in the way that circumstances always are in, in different spaces of migration. Um, so these are Chinese citizens and subjects who find themselves in a different place with slightly curtailed citizenship rights. But nonetheless, there are... Um, migrants within China, and they're all part of the so-called Greater China mm. Project. Mm. And so I don't think they necessarily feel any burden of conviviality uh, um, in relation to uh, the host population. Mm. By the way, the host population mm. is pretty much a migrant population in any case, because this you know, Tongli Road is built around the, the, the endeavor and the shoulders of migrants. So they're all migrants there. Mm. Um, you do find, of course, people who um, are not migrants, who are settled uh, South Shanghai people, um, and they do speak quite badly of the migrants. But what's really interesting is that the migrants don't feel any, any burden of conviviality. Um, not really. Mm. They just kind of get on with their own lives. They mm. do their own thing. Where you do find the burden of conviviality, and I'll I'll close here, is where that conviviality actually really matters. Mm. So in one of the places that we were looking at, a a factory in which they made just fantastic handcrafted furniture, um, the cook, a woman in uh, in that factory, didn't get on with the foreman. Foreman was also a migrant, but he was in with the boss, who was not a migrant. And so the, the woman, who actually was, was one of the few people who did suffer from acute depression, um, f- had to endure the burden of conviviality. She had to swallow her yali and her anger. And she was quite a maltreated in, 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 in the very large kitchen as well. Um, and she had to smile all the time. You know, she had to ingratiate herself. She had to make herself um, appear to be in control mm. of both herself mm. and the circumstances. So there you find this burden of conviviality. Um, um, it's, it's there when the chances of you losing your job, for instance, are very high. Mm-hmm. So when you're tenaciously trying to hang on to something... But, but on the street itself, um, I think the beauty of this place is that there's, there are none of these pretenses, which is just great. Mm. Mm. <laughs> a very important distinction of having a national context, which is one of them not that different. 
from the migrants' background, from mm, the examples yeah. you used. Let's use the last um, sort of 10 minutes or so for questions from the floor. There are roving microphones. Please wait for a microphone. It'd be great if you tell us who you are and uh, make a brief statement or comment. That would be great. So please put your hands up if there are gentlemen up there in the middle. Hello, I'm Miles O'Brien. My question is, do you feel that migration um, is... Well, it works the best where there is a low cost of living before prior to the major migration period, if you see what I mean. Victoria? Um, Ash? (laughs) (laughs) Ash, Yes. <laughs> I mean, in some ways, you could you could interpret what both of us have been saying as a cost of living um, situation. So, in Tongli Road, and and this is this your your question is actually quite prescient. Up until quite recently, um, rents were quite high because the place was thriving. And now, because of the destructions, rents have come tumbling down, mm. so, which is partly why people are choosing to stay. And they're saying, well, if I can just stay here because my daily costs will go down because rents have come down, though I find myself unemployed at the moment, um, I could just about sur- survive the transition, and when new work comes in, the cost of living will, will, will work for me. Um, all that said, the cost of living in the rural areas is very, very low. Um, will these migrants go back to the rural areas because of the cost of living? No, they won't. Because around the cost of living, there are no other opportunities. You know, so it's, this is a fine balance between cost of living questions and um, uh, opportunities for income and income generation. Yeah, I just would say just a couple of, um, just a few things on top of that. Closer to Sorry, the mic. I'll be um, um, I suppose, you know, your, the question is, does it work best when the cost of living is low? And I'd say that it's, it's, it's not normally possible where it's not, where the cost of living isn't low. Um, and in all of my research, what I've noticed is, so in, in parts of L.A., like Koreatown, um, the migration stops being possible there, obviously, once the cost of living rises. Um, and same Birmingham, parts of East London. And what lots of my re- um, interviewees have talked to me about in relation to this is the, the issue that we, we, in, in the press a lot, the idea when we talk about, about, about migration um, of self-segregation. And what people always remind me um, is that you move to certain areas because the cost of living is sufficiently low. And then you can't always move out of those areas because you can't afford to live elsewhere. So I think when we talk in kind of public commentary about migrants self-segregating, we have to bear these cost of living issues very much in mind. Before we come to the next question, one, if Susie Hall were here, she might have commented on some of, of her work on this issue on... Uh, rather than cost of living, more on the contribution to local economy, 
of some of these um, assimilated sort of migrant um, generations. And in, just to remind you that some of her early work in some of the high streets here in London, but then continued in Birmingham, Manchester, and elsewhere, um, not only did she find that the contribution to the local economy at the time of the recession of 2007-2008 was greater in one high street than the whole of one of the major shopping centers in London, and it remained relatively untouched, only dropped by 10%, as opposed to other parts of the London economy, which dropped by 30%, but also purely in terms of culture and education, there were uh, more languages spoken on this high street, not just dialects, but languages, uh, international languages, than the LSE staff. So it was an interesting sort of comparison just to... Can I just add a footnote to that? Um, I think in in those neighborhoods and countries in which almost every social relationship has been in some shape or form marketized, and so you're completely dependent on commodity relations to get from A to B, the cost of living question becomes really quite fundamental. Um, In the sorts of neighborhoods we're studying, uh, where much of the making and dwelling, to misquote Richard Sennett, is done by the people themselves, then the cost of living question finds itself embedded in a much wider issue of um, which has little to do with cost of living questions but everything to do with how easy it is or not for migrants to co-construct a habitable place. So that, at that point, I think cost of living questions become almost secondary. Mm. Question over here. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you. Uh, Terence Bendixson, University of Southampton. Um, Professor Amin, you referred to the remarkable equanimity and resoluteness of the residents in um, Tongley Road. Might that in any way be connected with the fact that most of them will either be first-generation migrants from villages where you live with the vagaries of the climate and you have to be extremely self-reliant and independent... Could that help to explain their culture? Um, Very much so. After all, these are people who have crafted lives, or their parents have crafted lives under very difficult circumstances in in the rural areas, and and craft is the operative word. They they know what to do. They know what what they're doing. Um, But equally... I think this resilience or resoluteness um, comes with other things too. Um, One of which is a national language of endurance, of the long road to prosperity, of putting up with things today for a much better tomorrow, and so on. And this... um, I suppose narrative of nation is internalized. There's no doubt about it. Mm. Um, I mean, a lot of the people we spoke to, one or two people whose circumstances were, were appalling, said, um, if this is a sacrifice I have to make for the Greater China Project, so be it. And it didn't draw a smile or make you want to laugh. 
at all, far from it. it this was said in, in real earnestness. So that's the second, I think, dimension of this uh, character of being, being resolute. And then I think the third one is, and I haven't really thought about this until now, um, but Victoria, I think, has given an answer here. That resoluteness comes from um, carrying your house on your back as a migrant for a very long time. Um, there are just simply no other options. Um, so you are almost de facto. And in fact, I think we should really celebrate um, the journeys that are made by, at the moment, people fleeing appalling circumstances in northern or, northern or central Africa or in the Middle East, trying to come to the West. But, well, these are really quite resolute people. This connects very much to your first point mm. about the significance of the journey and how little we understand it mm. at, at the point of arrival. Mm. Comment on that? Well, I just would, I would agree. I mean, I think when so much has gone into that, that journey, mm. um, it is also very difficult then to say, or to say this isn't working or, you know, um, but also when you know that you've only got yourself to rely on and you've only had yourself to rely on through that journey, yourself has to be enough, to some extent. Good phrase. I think there's a question right at the back. Thank you very much. Hi, I'm Reem. I'm a city student here. Um, I think we've, we, we can all agree that mar- uh, migrants, migrants have proven to show that they can create resilient markets, but they seem to continue to be fragmented away from the global capital trends. And we see this especially with regeneration, when oftentimes migrant communities and their their economic practices aren't seen as legitimate as the new investors that are coming in. And so it's easy to kind of legitimize their displacement. Um, I'm curious if you see potential in that changing and if there can be this convergence between global capital trends and then legitimizing these migrant economies without sacrificing their agency? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, It's a bit negative, (laughs) but I don't particularly see that changing right now. Um, You know, I think you you describe it very well, actually. And... um, the conditions that we see around us at the moment don't suggest that that is going to change, actually. I mean, if anything, we see that more and more. and more. Um, so no would be my answer, rather Ash, pessimistically. a bit of optimism on your part or not? No, no, I, agree. I, I, I mean, I, I completely agree with that, except that I think something that's implicit to what both of us have been saying is that life continues under the radar... Mm. Um, and that includes um, the deep necessity and reliance of most of the richer economies on migrant entrepreneurship and migrant Mm. labor. So much as all of this might be vilified in in the public arena, um, take it away, and these nations have had it. Mm. Now, I promised Victoria that we would end before her voice left her, uh, and uh, her need to also return home to an unwell family. So it is now quarter to eight. So we'd like to wrap up. Thank you very much for your questions.
And obviously, in a moment, I wanted to remind you, because it's been mentioned by Ash, I mean, that some of these themes will be picked up in a further discussion with Richard Sennett on the 20th of March. But once again, please thank the two speakers. Thank you very much.